Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Pod Me If You Can. This is Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews by David and Lloyd. An Australian podcast on your favorite movies. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can. I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. Today's film is The Girl on the Train. It's based on the Paula Hawkins novel and it's directed by Tate Taylor, who uh, brought us The Help a few years ago, and it stars Emily Blunt. Now, uh, The Girl on the Train is based on a novel that allegedly shocked the world, so if you haven't read the novel and you haven't seen the film, and you don't mind spoilers, we are going to be discussing the film with a lot of spoilers in mind. Uh, Lloyd, Girl on the Train... What did you think? You've never read the book, I should say, and I have read the book, so I think we're going to have slightly different uh, experiences. Well, I haven't read the book, The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins, but from what I can gather, the book is a trashy novel thriller like Gone Girl, and dare I say Fifty Shades of Grey, that's written for like housewives and soccer mums, particularly of the middle class to upper middle class. This is a really trashy thriller that gets worse as it unravels its climax. It feels like the movie banks a lot on the whodunit mechanic and the twist at the end, but I felt it was a very predictable story. Like I I saw the ending a mile away and I felt I was in trouble from the get-go with the strong use of voiceover. I think it's a huge sign of weakness from the director, Tate Taylor. It, it, It was used either because he wasn't confident in his storytelling abilities to introduce the character to us, or it was done to satisfy the fans of the book and get out as much of the interior monologue as possible. There was also some terrible decisions with the art galleries and sculptures, obviously showcasing the inner workings of Rachel's mind, but it was just too on the nose uh, for Mm. me. And I I can appreciate that, yeah. Yeah, and I thought the whole beginning of the film would have been so much stronger without the voiceover and we're left to piece together what exactly is happening and we see fragments of people's lives as the train is driving past and she's seeing everyone. But, uh, you know, Emily Blunt is such a strong actress. It really held me, held my attention to the very end. But I was just so shocked at how obvious the ending was and how much of the film treated like the ending to be this big twist or this big revelation, which I didn't feel at all. There's only like, there's only something um, like four main characters in the movie. So it's not hard to figure out, you know, who who done it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Was that like yeah. it in the book? Does the whole book bank on the, the mystery of it? Well, the book gives you in sort of chapter by chapter, each person's perspective. So you get a chapter from Rachel, a chapter from Megan, a chapter from Anna. And then later, I think Tom gets his own chapter. The thing is, in the book, there there could be it could be anybody who did it. But I think as well, you have a feeling that I don't know if you remember this, but um, Megan, you know, she had a baby with another person named Mac. That was a very brutal. That was probably the most effective flashback uh, where Megan yeah. loses the baby, played by Haley Bennett. That was very gut wrenching. Yeah, uh, the the guy who was the father of that baby. I think there's also an illusion that maybe he could come back. So there was another male character, uh, which really wasn't touched on in the movie. I felt as well that. In the film, you uh, you feeling for Emily Blunt's character Rachel, you you kind of think she's blacked out and that she's done something stupid. And in the book, I always thought that was a red herring. I never f- never assumed her character killed anybody and it wasn't capable of it. It would be a really really different kind of book if your lead character 
had been basically a murderer the whole time and didn't realise it. Uh, so I never assumed that was the case. But for Tom, who is ultimately the killer in this book and film, he's given a lot more kind of nice moments in the book and you're less suspicious of him. So there are scenes where he and Rachel talk and he's kind to her and it's the kind of thing which gives her hope and the reason probably that for two years she still hasn't got over him. You know, um, the alcohol hasn't helped, but the fact that he's still a very nice guy and that he's just trying to move on with his life, I think he's painted with a nicer brush in the book. In the movie, you're given that scene with uh, Scott, played by Luke Evans, where he says, I'm not the father and neither is Dr. Kamal. And you think, oh, well, there's only other one, yeah. only one other male character in this movie. <laughs> so it did seem much more obvious watching the film, but I did have that prior knowledge that it was Tom from the book. So you as well found that really obvious. Yeah, that, absolutely. I, I, I hated the use of flashbacks. I think it was a very b- bad idea. There was quite a few times I was confused as to where we were in the story. But some of them, as, as we said, are very effective, especially the flashback with Megan. I just wish they holstered that a lot more. And with you just saying, because the book is broken into chapters from different points of view, does it um, wind back so you understand it from their point of view? Is that is that how it works in the book? Yeah, I mean, it's very similar to the film in that you're given the pieces leading up to the fact that she's pregnant, and then leading up to the fact that it's Tom's baby, and then that's ultimately why Tom commits the murder. Because uh, he doesn't really want kids, and he's not fussed, not as fussed even, uh, that Rachel can't get pregnant. You remember in her flashbacks, they're trying IVF. But in the book, I think he's not as fussed. And he also goes to Vegas, spends some money in Vegas um, that could have been put towards IVF and he doesn't really care. I mean, ultimately, he probably married or, you know, got together with Anna because she got pregnant. And even now that he's with her, has the kid, he's still having affairs. Like, Megan is one of probably many affairs. As we hear, he lost his job, you know, at at his work because he couldn't keep his dick in his pants. So he's a womanizer, and uh, clearly the manipulation and stuff is there. For me, there was something really claustrophobic about the way this shot was shot. Most frames were like a close-up, and it kind of frustrated me at times. Um, That's all I really remember about the directing, but it was very claustrophobic. Um, I thought the cinematographer work by Charlotte Bruce Christensen was really good. I liked the strobe motion effect. Uh, It really brought you into the mess of Rachel's life. And I think she did a wonderful job in this film. It does look of this film is almost a midday movie film, but there are certain aspects of this film that does elevate it to a very well done Hollywood movie. And one of those elements is the cinematography. I think it's done uh, really well here. It's funny. I'd actually written down that I didn't like that strobe motion effect. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of critics didn't, but I I just felt there's just something about it that you really feel you're in that, that drunken gaze. And when she's yelling and moving and everything like that, just... I just really felt in Emily Blunt's point of view a lot of times. I thought it worked. I think you'll find, and I've just come out of the screening 25 minutes ago, so it's very fresh in my mind, but I think you'll find that they used that strobe effect not just for the times she was drunk, which might be why I got sick of it, because okay. maybe as a storytelling, you know, showing what how she feels when she's drunk and stumbling, that works more. But seeing other people say things... Um, like Haley Bennett's character Megan when she is retelling about how she lost the baby or drowned the baby accidentally. 
she gets very stroby and it's really it's just used for very emotional moments. Sure. I, I haven't seen a movie like this at the cinema in a long time. I think there was that Jennifer Lopez movie, The Boy Next Door, and we certainly got a lot of these type of movies in the late 80s to 90s, such as Fatal Attraction, Fear, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, if you remember how we were just bombarded with all those movies. And what that appeal was, it, it was like the breakdown of the suburban families. It's the fear of the suburban invasion and maybe isolation. It feels like that appetite for it is coming back at full force. I think Fifty Shades of Grey is kind of in that vein, but really Gone Girl has brought it to more of an elite level of movie making. And the difference between The Girl on the Train and Gone Girl is obviously the directors. David Fincher is obviously an elite level director and he brings that whole trait to his movies that elevates the pulpy level of Gone Girl, which it is a pulpy you know, level book, and it uh, it brings it to a lot a very respectable movie. And with Girl on the Train, I think we have a so-so director Tate Taylor trying to do something, but just doesn't have the craft like uh, David Fincher. I've written down Fincher-esque yeah. because <laughs> it would have been fantastic to see David Fincher take on this material. Yeah. And I think yeah. I did say that at some point on the podcast when that was all announced. Yeah, we have reviewed, uh, if people are interested, both Fifty Shades and Gone Girl on this podcast, so you can go back and, and find our thoughts on those if you're interested. The original casting of this film, too, Justin Thoreau's character Tom was played by Chris Evans, Captain America. Wow. And Jared Leto, obviously the Joker, got to be Scott the Neighbour. Both two A-list for me, and I'm glad they scaled things back a bit to, I mean, they're not unknowns, but more unknowns you know they don't bring all this baggage you're not thinking about how captain america could be the killer in yeah, this one you know yeah absolutely there's yeah. something about justin Theroux. he's that 1950s quality where he's that you know that that uh sort of tough guy that wears the leather jacket and rode a motorbike or, or drove one of those super hot rod cars and he's matured into this he just has that quality to him and it, it, there's always something unsettling about him i thought he was really perfectly cast but maybe because of that casting it made it a bit too obvious for me that's possible yeah no i thought it would have been even more obvious if it was chris evans because otherwise i was thinking why would they put him in this film you know like he needs something to do some acting challenge i thought the interesting thing about The Girl on the Train is that it deals with some really deep themes of abuse really well, both of the physical yep. and of the mental. And there is a really great sense of uh, abused memory that was conveyed so well by Emily Blunt that her husband abused her so much she actually believed the lies. It just, uh, I think some people might find that fantastical, but I can perfectly understand that, that you're, you're, you know, you're, you've been in an abusive rela- relationship for so long, your mind is molded to that belief that you really do believe you might have done those things, you believe all their lies. And it really affected her own memory. And we get a really great moment with Anna, played by Rebecca Ferguson, after she discovers what her husband, who her husband truly is, she's willing to live with that lie. It's just that really brief moment. Moment, and there's something about the woman who stays with the abusive husband and how much they will take. And I like how the film doesn't really answer that because there really isn't any answers. Like every every situation's different. But that was really uh, interesting in the movie. You really feel. The, how, how much these women are subjective to the abuse of, of these uh, male characters. That's right. I feel like Anna wasn't really fleshed out. She probably came off as more two-dimensional because she didn't really get her own voiceover and 
And she did have that scene where she spoke of missing being the other woman, you know, like now her life was quite boring and uh, not dramatic and she was just kept in a house with a baby. Yeah. She was a very, very nasty and smug character. Yeah. I felt like that um, that nanny position, and I felt this when I read the book as well. I was like, she really doesn't need a nanny. She's not she's not really doing much. But it was the same in the book. Like you know, in the movie, sorry, they um they didn't really, you know, explain that she needed a nanny or anything. She just kind of says, oh, I I quit, and uh, you don't need me for this, and you don't work, and you should probably go back to work. And wasn't it sick how you realized Tom, played by Justin Theroux, got her the nanny job because he liked the idea of both of them? He goes, oh, yeah. I just thought it would be fun. That is so sick. <laughs> mm. Yeah, he's got a lot of uh, evil shades when you sort of break it down. What did you make of Dr. Kamal? Because in the book, he was Indian, and this is kind of whitewashed. Uh, the character a bit here. I, I feel like I remember he had a wife as well, but not 100% on I thought that. He, is he South American in this film? Because I just heard when they, he briefly speaks in a foreign language, I thought it was Spanish. Well, he says he's an American citizen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he's, you know, Edgar Ramirez is a sort of Mexican actor, I suppose. So maybe he was just playing, you know, Mexican uh, doctor. Um, but all those sequences with with him and um, Megan, played by Haley Bennett, she's getting very overtly sexual, and people are now comparing her to um, like a sexed-up Jennifer Lawrence. Oh yeah, um, she did remind me of a lot of uh, Jennifer Lawrence, I, and I can completely see that. She embraced the nudity that you know wasn't absolutely essential for this film. You know, the bathtub scene—it's hard to avoid the fact that you're naked, and um, those are the there's two scenes that really haunt me from the book. Uh, that I remember very vividly. And one is the baby falling asleep on her chest in the bathtub and her waking up to a drowned baby, which I'm glad we didn't see a drowned baby in the movie. Yeah, it was much more effective, I I think. Yeah. I mean, in in your mind, you know, you're sort of hearing that story in the book and you sort of, um, you form it in your mind well enough that it's horrific. Um, And the other one is the corkscrew at the end, both where she stabs him with the corkscrew and then when Anna really murders him some more by driving it home. Um, that's the sort of most vivid moments that come back from um, from the book. Why was when Megan, every time she did her training and then her running, why was a lot of the people in that yoga class giving her, giving her evil stares? I guess that they're waiting for her to have a baby and sort of um, she doesn't have a lot of friends. But none of them know about her lost baby, do they? No. Okay. Also, there's a, a big theme from the book that didn't come across where... The character of Megan, because she lost that baby, she's punishing herself. So some of that, I suppose, is the running. But as well, all the cheating, she doesn't feel like she deserves the husband and the baby and the nice happily ever after that she seems to have. Yeah, no, that came across in the movie for me. I I definitely felt a bit of a self-destructive nature to her that she wants to, you know a bit of redemption maybe and a redemption through pain, like she is acceptable of the abusive nature of a boyfriend. Uh, I'm not never quite sure how is he abusive. He just seems really controlling. But did he actually physically punish her? Uh, I can't remember, to be honest. Um, obviously not in the movie, but um, I think he does want to pin her down in the sense that he wants to have a baby. Yeah, because he, I, I got that. He's a very strong, aggressive guy and he is very controlling going through emails and a phone and so forth, but I never got that he actually physically punished her, but just from, you know, we're never quite sure if she's actually telling the truth to a a psychologist. 
that, you know, Dr. Camille seems to think that it is an abusive relationship, but just from the images that the director showed us, it doesn't seem that he was an abusive guy. Yeah, no, you don't get to know him. Like I said, he and Anna, Scott and Anna both come across as very two-dimensional. Uh, there's just not quite enough of them and their their motives, I suppose. The thing was, uh, people found her very frustrating as a character. I remember her making a lot of very bad decisions in the book. She's a very frustrating, I suppose, uh, lead. And when you have to follow her story and she goes, here's from the police, stay away. And the next scene, she's there. Yeah. And they tell her, you know, don't go back to that street. And then she's knocking on the door telling Scott she's a friend of Megan's. Yeah, it becomes like a weird detective moment when the moment the disappearance happens, she just feels like, oh, let's try to solve this case, you know. And she, she I, I never quite understood as well how is she funding that lifestyle and how long was she living it? Like They did mention she's been getting alimony. Yeah, because, I mean, I suppose he's cheated on her. He's keeping the house, so she's getting payments, you know, to keep them, to make them even, I suppose, because she would receive, you know, half or whatever, theoretically, in a divorce. Um, so she is getting payments from him, getting alimony, uh, which, you know, she doesn't have a job and she's just spending it all on booze. So, and booze and train tickets, it uh, seems. A lot of the critics uh, were saying, uh, the, sorry, fans of the book were saying Emily Blunt is too pretty for the role. Is, is that true compared to the book? Well, it's true that she's very pretty, yes. <laughs> but compared to the book, she isn't an attractive lady? Well, I guess you're supposed to have more of a frumpy drunk. It's all set in, in England, so English woman fits but um yeah uh that was a lot of the argument but um even that i suppose i was looking to see whether or not she'd really ugged up for this movie like um whether the makeup and everything was effective uh she was also pregnant during the filming of this movie so there is a bit of padding to her that you know was not necessary to be added i suppose uh the one time i thought yeah she looks really horrible and full-on gross uh you know that they've effectively used the makeup here is that sequence where she's in the bathroom in front of the mirrors. And I she's thought that was the, the-, the lipstick on the mirror. I thought that was the best scene, yeah. Yeah, no, she really came across as, as exactly the character there. Who was um, a friend that she took a photo with and what did, was she doing when, uh, when she was yelling and recording herself in front of the mirror? Did that person just leave? Was that just a random person she took a photo with? Completely random person who I guess went and used a cubicle um, and then left, maybe. I'm pretty sure those scenes aren't in the book, though. So that whole thing of exposition where she says she, you know, she wants to smash her head and she's ruining it. And I suppose that's all implied through all the the voiceover and thinking and whatever in the book. Uh, but they just had to verbalise it in this drunken rage. Some of the people in my audience laughed uh, in that scene when she picks up the baby. Not the first flashback, but when it's all revealed uh, she's holding the baby in the backyard and then she puts it down and walks off towards the train set, uh, towards the train tracks. It just looks so awkward. This girl just walking to nowhere and people were laughing. It just looked, something about the direction of it just looked oh, really no, I awkward. I found that funny too. <laughs> um, the reason was I thought she ran kind of like a Muppet. Yeah, um, yeah. She, <laughs> she puts just it down looked awkward. And she's in a business suit going, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other thing I couldn't help but find funny, every sequence with Alice and Janney in it, and she's Detective Riley, every scene she's in, there's a male cop standing next to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who has almost no lines at all. <laughs> I felt, barely... Yeah, I felt it was a bit mean towards a lot of the male characters in, in this entire movie. 100%, yeah. <laughs> no, there's not very very good male 
role models in this movie. Maybe the doctor, but in the same way, he's kind of abusing his job, the the doctor-patient relationship. Well, every sequence you see that cop in, uh, just to finish my thought, he doesn't say a word, and I kept (laughs) making jokes to Tess, who was next to me, my wife, making jokes about the fact that Come on, we got to go. Uh, I've got that English lesson or that public speaking lesson. <laughs> you know that he uh, he had some crippling to, uh, ability to not be able to speak in public. Or well, wasn't it weird? The detective asked, oh, "You know, uh, I'll take this one." She takes her into the bathroom and yeah. goes, "We need a statement." Wouldn't that be more formal in a police room? It's just such a weird setting. <laughs> yeah, well, she's trying to catch her off guard. Um, I guess as well, she's not taking her statement seriously because she's an incredibly unreliable narrator in the book and she's an incredibly unreliable witness in the film. So, you know, you grain of salt, everything she says. If Scott assaulted her, it's like, really? Scott assaulted you? Is that your boyfriend? You know, she gets very defensive uh, and about Why it would all. Scott turn up at her apartment as well? That was so unbelievable. He goes, I don't know where to go. Really? You don't have other friends? This random person who came to your house that you've never seen before saying that she's your girlfriend slash wife's friend, you went to her house in this desperate time, wouldn't he have a close friend? To ne- oh, just so unbelievable. And that's where the trashy aspect of the novel really comes in. And it's uh, the mechanics of this story is a real midday movie type of film. <laughs> I remember I came out of the cinema and I was like, yeah, six or seven out of ten. I mean, it had some holes, but... Um, I think it was ultimately very good as a book in terms of it unfolding and, you know, you enjoying it. But because the character of Rachel is a drunk, it is very frustrating to read. Yeah, you do kind of question her choices to drink that bottle of wine and everything. In uh, her roommate, played by Laura Prepon from uh, That 70s Show and Orange is the New Black, uh, her roommate basically kicks her out, I think, because she says you can't stay here anymore because she, like, vomits all over the carpet and when she comes home drunk one night. So there's a bit more of, like, a negative energy there. She's not so willing to have her there for two years uh, that gets glossed over. And as well, the the red-headed man, who I dubbed Red Herring, <laughs> you know, he is a nothing little uh, scene in, in the book. He just happens to be there the night she blacks out, and then there is that scene where she asks him what happened. But they really made a point of going, he's on the train with her, he's staring at her, he's, he's noticing her, he's following her. They like made it a lot more of a thing uh, to the point where you're, I suppose, you're supposed to wonder if he's the killer as well. Oh, no, no, yeah, the movie does try to throw you off with, obviously because I think the director knew we were going into a very small melodramatic world with only populated by only three or four characters. We need to pop in anyone else just to throw the audience off and that red-headed guy was <laughs> was that kind of mechanic that they tried to, to put you off with. Uh, there is that big reveal, obviously, Megan getting into Tom's car and by that point you really know who who done it. You know, um, the tension is gone. They went to the woods a lot. There was a real sense of going to the woods, like she loses the baby in the woods, she's having that affair in the woods, she gets killed in the woods. And when she does get killed with that rock, uh, someone in my audience loudly said, Jesus, like they hadn't read the book, obviously. (laughs) Although I think you should have figured it out at that point. I I thought that death scene was very brutal. Yeah, well, the same way that she's not quite dead and he has to finish the job... 
Yeah. Uh, he's not quite dead with the corkscrew, and then, you know, they finish the job later on. Uh, I can see at the end how, you know, they have a forever bond, the three of them, the story they share, and it shows that statue of the three intertwined hands was, was pretty on the nose. You know, I can appreciate that. Looking ahead and not looking at the house anymore... Those people wouldn't live in the houses anymore. You'd move out. There's Too no reason for... Too many bad memories. Yeah, there's no reason for Scott to stay in the house, the big house that he no longer has a, a partner in, and there's no reason that Tom and Anna would... Well, Tom's dead, but, you know, that Anna would stay living in the house that Rachel decorated every element of. Nothing nothing doing there. But, yeah, just, um, I suppose, in the book, from memory, Tom was painted with a nicer brush, and that, as well, he had nice kind of scenes with her which made him seem like he cared a lot more. And I think he answered the phone a few more times when she called. Like, there wasn't so many call and hang-ups and unknown numbers. Like, I think he did answer the phone and talk to her a little. So are you happy with the adaptation, or is the book vastly superior? Vastly superior, I think. It was a, a good adaptation. It wasn't a great adaptation. And it does feel a little rushed in the sense that they started shooting in November and it's out in October, you know, uh, less than a year quick shoot. I'm amazed that it cost $45 million to make that. Um, that seems very high. I suppose everything's expensive these days, though. Even just salaries would be right up there. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, $45 million, it'll make triple that easy. And, you know, it'll be a huge success. But we'll have to wait and see if Paula Hawkins comes out with another novel. It's, um, it's exactly the same sort of format, though, when you sort of when you read it, that whole chapter by chapter reveal, the thriller, it is Gone Girl. It's the same sort of writing style. And there's a lot of people uh, taking the same kind of writing style as well. So, you know, this might be the kind of paperback thrillers we see for a while. Can you predict another popular book like uh, The Girl with the Train that they're going to adapt next? Uh, there's a novel by Emily Bleeker, who um, she's written a couple. And uh, the one that I think will be adapted is called Wreckage. Basically, it is a story of uh, a plane crash where a married woman gets on a plane and crashes with very few survivors. Pretty much her husband, it's like his story back home and it's a bit castaway-esque, but, you know, she also kind of falls in love with the, uh, one of the gentlemen she's uh, on the island with and, you know, they're trapped for many years and uh, it's got all the hallmarks of like a gone girl and and like a girl on the train. And um, uh, I read her follow-up novel as well because I thought the first was quite good and it's called When I'm Gone, uh, which isn't as good as the first one. So Wreckage by uh, Emily Bleeker, that would be my money on uh, what gets adapted. But the thing is, uh, Reese Witherspoon and several other producers are always buying up these kinds of properties as well. So, um, you know, like when something good comes out, they read it before it's even published and buy the rights shortly after. And, you know, this is the kind of result we get. We get at least uh, one of the big positives from Girl on the Train is that there's multiple good female roles. Emily Blunt, Hayley Bennett and Rebecca Ferguson all had a pretty good time here, but at the expense of the male roles because all the men come off as jerks yeah. and there's no one to root for and the film is very hard on male characters, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't need to be. That's the thing. It doesn't need to have this aggressive feminist uh, perspective. I, I don't feel at all. It just needs to tell a great thriller movie and uh, just look back at the films of the late 80s and 90s. I'm not saying they were great movies, but they were much more straightforward and they were all very successful and I'm I'm just really happy the girl on the train 
movies like that are doing really well because it's just so refreshing to see a movie like this that isn't a superhero movie or a movie that's starting a franchise or where the whole world's at stake at the end. We just get a, a solid thriller movie. I just, I, I think um, the cinematography is great here. Um, Emily Blunt is incredible. And uh, I just wish it was just much more straightforward. Cut out some of those flashbacks. I hated six months earlier, two months earlier, one week ago. I hated all of that. And I just wish it was much more straightforward and just played it uh, really simple. And I think it would have been much more engaging and much more of a thriller for me. Yeah, as you said, um, that all that all stems from the novel and that's just the bones they're working with of the story. I hated uh, the scene where she's trying to guess his password. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> For me, that was the low point of the movie. I hate watching people trying to guess passwords. Like that's, especially if they don't crack them. Like there's no payoff to having that in the film. Yeah, I found that very frustrating. But if anything comes out of this awards-wise, I feel like it's going to be Emily Blunt's acting. I think she did a really good job. Or the other one is adapted screenplay. I'm not sure what the field looks like there, but obviously this is adapted material, so uh, we might see an adapted screenplay Oscar in the future. Well, that's uh, The Girl on the Train, uh, directed by Tate Taylor. Uh, obviously a very interesting film. If anything, awards season, we can keep our fingers crossed for Emily Blunt. Next time on the podcast, I'm not sure if we'll have an interview or we'll have uh, Doctor Strange. We do have a couple of films coming up. Uh, Lloyd and I sometimes fill in the back catalogue of films we should have seen by now. And uh, there's some really obvious ones, like, for example, I had never seen Goonies and, uh, until last year, and I think now I have, and, you know, uh, have that, that memory forever. But uh, there's a couple of films coming up for Lloyd and I that um, they're right there in the canon of pop culture, and for some reason we've missed them. So we've got those to look forward to as well. You can uh, keep it locked onto podmeifyoucan.com to find all our archive of podcasts there and as well we've got a link to our youtube channel you can find obscure films with famous stars in them and uh, see our video reviews thanks for listening to the girl on the train uh, let us know your thoughts um, you can hit us up on twitter everything facebook you can find us it's all at podmeifyoucan.com hit it Ooh. Yeah, yeah. thank you for listening please like us on facebook and Follow us on Twitter. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews. 